The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. Uh, 65 years of age and older, there are about 60,000 to 160,000 hospitalizations per year, so it's a significant burden. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled, More Protection Against Respiratory Viral Infection, Respiratory Syncytial Virus Vaccines for Adults Aged 60 Years and Older. Joining us on the podcast is the author of this piece, Dr. Camille Nelson-Cotton, who's the Clinical Director of Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases at the Mass General Hospital and Associate Professor at Harvard. She's a voting member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice at the CDC and chaired the Adult RSV Vaccine Work Group. Camille, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. As I've talked to some of my colleagues and told them that we're going to record this podcast, they said, so what should we do? And I think that this topic is one that is confusing many physicians. So let's start out by just talking about the dangers of respiratory syncytial virus, and we'll just say RSV from now on. And as an internist, I always thought, well, this is something that they worry about over at Children's Hospital, but why should I be worried about it as an internist? I think that until recently, we didn't have great diagnostics for RSV, so many of us didn't realize the burden of RSV in older adults, and we called it things like viral pneumonia, COPD flare, you know, respiratory viral infection. But in recent years with advanced diagnostics somewhat highlighted or increasingly utilized through the pandemic, we started to realize how much RSV there is out there. And it's estimated that among adults over the age of uh, 65 years of age and older, there are about 60,000 to 160,000 hospitalizations per year. So it's a significant burden. And then it's estimated that there are 10 to 14,000 deaths per year among adults 65 years of age and over. So both of those are, are pretty significant numbers. And then there's just a lot of comorbidities and ensuing complications after people have these major viral respiratory infections. Are, are there any characteristics of the people who end up hospitalized with RSV uh, and therefore probably the deaths would be in that same category. 
Yes, that's true. So there are definitely uh, chronic medical conditions that are associated with higher risk. And certainly people with chronic lung disease, uh, COPD, asthma, cardiovascular disease, including uh, heart failure, as well as coronary artery disease. Significant immunosuppression is another one. Um, and those are many of the patients that I take care of. Mm -hmm. uh, significant diabetes, um, especially poorly controlled diabetes, people with kidney or liver disorders or hematologic disorders. And then there's some other factors that aren't comorbidities, but things like frailty, what we call advanced age, which is 75 years and older, people who are living in a nursing home. And then there are, you know, what I've been saying to colleagues is sometimes you know it when you see it and you're, you have patients that you are really worried about their overall health status and mm -hmm. there's, you know, at least 60 and you think, wow, you know, that person would really benefit by preventing additional uh, respiratory viral infections. Right. There are people in their 60s who are elderly and people in their 60s who are middle aged. Definitely. Some are youthful. Uh, yes. So talk a little bit about the vaccine and why the initial target is people over 60. You know, until recently, they weren't able to uh, get the right protein structure and develop the vaccine. And then they were able to figure out how to make the vaccine. And the first two vaccines to reach clinical trials and then FDA approval were two vaccines that were made by GSK and uh, Pfizer. Both went through very large phase three trials and they are very effective. The GSK vaccine has uh, vaccine efficacy at about 83% in season one and then 56% in season two, but overall vaccine efficacy of, of about 75% for the first two seasons. And, you know, it's generally well tolerated. It does contain adjuvant. So the GSK uh, vaccine contains adjuvant, which is the same adjuvant that's in Shingrix, but at half the dose. So it's called this ASO1E adjuvant, but overall well-tolerated. And then the other vaccine is the Pfizer vaccine, where they studied over almost 37,000 uh, immunocompetent patients, um, 60 years of age and over. And it was a randomized trial compared with placebo. And again, uh, vaccine efficacy in season one was 90% dropped to 79% in season two, but overall combined efficacy of 84%. So both are really robust efficacy against um, preventing uh, significant RSV infections and they're well tolerated. So it's really been um, the first time that we've been able to prevent this. And, you know, it's that's that's exciting. I kind of, in my mind, categorize it with the flu shot, you know, prevents a common severe respiratory viral infection and also COVID-19. And so it's kind of the triple vaccine era we are entering. Did I read in uh, your piece that even if you were hospitalized, you were less likely to die if you'd had the vaccine? There were so few deaths that I don't think that we can uh, look at that carefully. That, that was one of the issues is the trials actually were done largely during the COVID time when people were masked. And so we did not see rates of death or hospitalization as we might have anticipated prior to COVID. Um, so I don't think we have that information. 
So one of the things that people always want to know is side effects. And uh, it seems like there might be a slight increase in uh, neurological side effects, but really slight. Could you could you address that? Because people do worry about that. Sure. Well, you're right. Both vaccines were um, very well tolerated uh, for GSK, uh, almost 4% had grade three local or systemic reactions. For the Pfizer vaccine, it was about 1% had grade three local or systemic reactions. In general, those are low rates. Things that were concerning, though, were this the neurologic side effects. And uh, let's just say I've learned a lot about Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, which happens more frequently in older adults. So that's sort of a a background situation. For GSK vaccine, there were three out of almost 18,000 participants who got vaccine within 42 days after the vaccine who developed either one case of Guillain-Barre or two cases of acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. In general, we don't think of ADEM as necessarily being associated with this type of vaccine. So there's only one case of Guillain-Barre you know, that could be associated with vaccine. It wasn't, we didn't see any Guillain-Barre in the placebo arms, um, but so that's concerning. And then with the Pfizer vaccine, there were three out of uh, just over 20,000 people who got vaccine who developed neurologic sequelae, including one case of Guillain-Barre, um, another case of Miller-Fisher variant, which is really um, a type of Guillain-Barre. And then there was someone else who had worsening of pre-existing undifferentiated motor central axonal uh, polyneuropathy. So, you know, it's sort of each of the vaccines among fairly close to 20,000 people vaccinated had one to two cases of Guillain-Barre again, not seen a placebo, so somewhat concerning, but not clear where this signal will go. You know, if post-marketing, we will see a lot more cases or fewer cases. I will say that overall, the rates are higher than what we saw with either influenza vaccines in the past or shingles vaccine, such as Shingrix. So it is concerning and actually did help frame some of our thoughts about this on the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice when we were voting as far as the uh, way to recommend uh, rollout of this vaccine for people 60 and over. My non-medical friends keep asking me about this vaccine, and they, they ask me about the cost, because somebody told me they went to get it, and it cost $400. Other people t- tell me they went to get it, and it didn't cost anything. Well, welcome to American healthcare. And I think vaccines and insurance coverage are more complex than ever before. So that is an issue. I know that people at the CDC are looking at this topic, especially looking at equity and making sure that there is what we call immunologic equity, that that we all have kind of equal access to vaccines. Um, although many of these issues regarding uh, insurance are not related to the CDC, and it's actually HHS and other people that develop healthcare policy. So as it is right now, RSV vaccines are covered under, for people who have Medicare Part D, with the Inflation Reduction Act, these vaccines should be free. So you should be able to go wherever that has the vaccine, and the whole vaccine should be administered to you for free, and you should be able to walk out the door. 
Well, for people that don't have Part D coverage or for people that have private insurance, we have heard that it's quite problematic. And basically, that's because there's a uh, health and human services policy uh, that coverage for any new vaccine that's been recommended by the ACIP, private insurance companies have a year or the following policy year. So it could be like a year and a half or up up to close to two years after the vaccine is recommended to provide coverage, but coverage doesn't mean in full and there might be substantial cost sharing. So they might say, we're gonna cover 50%, you cover the other 50%, which these vaccines are close to $300 each and then there's often an administration fee. And so you're right that they could be $350 or more. And you know when you talk about shared clinical decision-making, Well, I would say I'm a frugal New Englander, and so a lot goes into shared clinical decision-making. If you think someone's really vulnerable, um, you might say, you know what, I think it's it's a lot of money, but that's money well spent for you. But for many people, you might say, you know what, wait a year, let your insurance figure this one out. Let's see what the price is next year. You know, I think that that's that probably needs to go into the equation because this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a ten dollar copay. This is a, I think that's a lot of money to a lot of people. I do find it's it's, um, you know, initially the companies developing vaccine had for doing a cost benefit analysis had told us the vaccines would be about half the price that they are, and right at the end of the time, right when we were about to make a recommendation, the cost of the vaccines pretty much doubled, um, which was really disappointing. Okay. So I'm a 74 year old healthy man. I've never smoked. I have no known lung or heart disease and none in my family. Uh, I ran three miles yesterday and I'm trying to decide whether or not to get RSV. If I was a smoker and had COPD, I I know some guys who are smokers. I'm going to encourage them to get it that have, have, uh, fortunately, mild COPD, but they still have COPD. But what do, what do you tell somebody between sixty and seventy five, or uh, who's who's a young sixty to seventy five, as opposed to an old? And and again, we know it when we see it. Yes, so that's where the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice really wanted to not make a blanket recommendation, you know, like we've done, say, for COVID vaccines, it's recommended for everyone six months of age and older. We wanted there to be a little bit more thought. There does seem to be, you know, this very subtle neurologic signal. There is a slightly elevated risk of atrial fibrillation seen with both vaccines. Many of those people previously had AFib, but Um, Some did develop what seems to be new AFib. So, and it is a new vaccine. And my primary care provider once said to me, you know, Camille, you don't need to be first in line for a new vaccine. So I do think that that's reasonable. I will say that, you know, tens of thousands of people have received these vaccines. So, you know, it's not first in line. But I would say um, this is where the shared clinical decision making comes in. For a healthy person who's not yet 75, who doesn't have the comorbidities that I mentioned, it may be a good time to just kind of sit back, wait a year, maybe not wait a long time, but kind of let the dust settle and see see what happens in, you know, this 
this year. I do think that there are many people that we know of who really could benefit from this vaccine. I am generally recommending this for all my immunocompromised patients because we see devastating RSV each year. In fact, we have RS- I have RSV on my clinical service now. And we're starting to see little little bits of RSV increased disease activity out there. But for most people, especially some people who are still being sort of COVID cautious, so that probably means that they're also inherently being RSV cautious, wearing masks and, you know, whatever, decreasing their risk of exposure. I think it's reasonable to um, hang back and see what happens in the next year. And if you're 74 this year, you'll be 75 next year. And, you know, 75 is a threshold that we consider a significant one in the RSV world. I will say that there weren't many people sort of in that older cohort who were included in the vaccine studies, but nonetheless, we do think that that's where you might start to benefit. So I, it's reasonable for you, I think, to hang, to hang back for a year. Will we have more data by next year? Well, yes. So, you know, the CDC is collecting a tremendous amount of data. Um, there will be data through the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System called VAERS. And I do encourage everyone listening to this to report to VAERS. I would um, also encourage people who are getting the vaccine, uh, if they get it in October or later, you can use the smartphone app called VSafe and you can actually report how you're feeling after you get it. So you can contribute to medical science. And then the companies will be recording things like neurologic events, atrial fibrillation um, in post-marketing work. So there will be, I think, more safety data, not more efficacy data necessarily, but more safety data next year or, you know, for making this pre-RSV season decision, because it is a good time to think about getting the RSV vaccine now before disease picks up. It usually starts picking up in sort of November timeframe. So it is a good time of year to start thinking about it kind of alongside your flu shot and your COVID vaccine. Did anybody consider as a grandparent, uh, I have teenage grandsons, but I have a one-year-old grandson. And is there benefit to my one-year-old for me to be vaccinated, to be less likely to to, uh, expose him? Well, that's a very interesting question. We mostly think about grandchildren giving diseases to grandparents. I do think that, you know, especially if you had, say, a vulnerable grandchild or vulnerable people in your household, we call that cocooning the vulnerable or immunocompromised person by vaccinating the people around them. So if you're sort of on the fence and you're not quite sure if somebody merits an RSV vaccine, that's probably a good way to think about it is you know, who who do you live with? What's the overall household risk? We don't know that this will decrease transmission in the household, but we would presume it might. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, writing the article and sharing it and being so clear about the positives about the vaccine and the unknowns about the vaccine. And I think that for uh, our primary care physicians who listen to us, and probably also hospitalists, because we give a lot of vaccines in the hospital. And should we be considering this? And what should we be teaching our residents about, about this vaccine when, when they see many patients who are vulnerable? And so thanks a lot for uh, joining us on the podcast. Sure, it's a pleasure. 
Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting discussion exposed us to the risk of RSV and the potential benefits of the vaccine. In the studies done thus far, uh, the vaccine is successful at decreasing hospitalizations. There do seem to be some small risks. Uh, there's a risk of Guillain-Barre, perhaps, although the numbers are so small that we don't know if it's a true risk. There's also a risk of uh, atrial fibrillation in patients who previously had atrial fibrillation. We'll need m much more data to better understand these risks. There's also the concern about the cost of the vaccine. Those of us who have uh, Medicare Part D get it for free, but people who don't have Part D or have private insurance, it may not be covered. The decision of whether or not to prescribe uh, the RSV vaccine uh, should be individualized and shared decision-making. We hope you've learned enough from this podcast to help your patients make good decisions about the potential of this vaccine this year, waiting for more information over the next couple of years. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.